1: You know, a factoid that has really stuck with me over the past several years comes from a repeated discovery of United Way's ALICE program. And that's that about 40% of working American households can barely afford to make ends meet. 40%. What's that all about? Well, lots of things. But the biggest issue is that there appears to be too few good jobs in our economy. And what's a good job? Well, it's full-time. They don't try to cheat you out of benefits by arguing that you're part-time. They give you benefits. They pay you enough to make a living. They don't stress you out so bad that you lose your mind. They give you a role that you find fulfilling and even contributes to your growth. You know, stuff like that. The basics. Lots of things have led to the decline of these so-called good jobs which let's be real, were mostly held by white guys. One of the things that's led to the decline is that more people work in jobs that are temporary or contract-based or rooted in soft money or are a part of what we now call the gig economy. And that's the topic of historian Lewis Hyman's book, Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. In this conversation, Lou and I chat about how most mid-20th century secure jobs were possessed by white men, how temporary work began to rise in the post-World War II period, and how all of this led to the gig-based world we inhabit today. Lou and I also talk about how he has an alternative vision for the way forward around such jobs. We could live in a better future, Lou argues where we give up on mid 20th century ideas of good jobs and start making temp work survivable by providing adequate support and assistance to citizens. It's a different way of looking at a set of topics about work and law and the life we want to live that are likely to be important issues for some time. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I had a lot of fun talking to Lou. Get excited. For joining me today,
0: it's a great pleasure to be here, Lee. Thanks so much,
1: Lou. I think uh, Temps a neat book. When you talk about it with strangers, which you were doing an awful uh, lot of when it first came out, what what do you tell them it's about?
0: Uh, I tell them about the story of work in America and how it became insecure. So for me, the dominant narrative we have in this country is that work became secure and then it sort of betrayed us all, right? That's the story of the post-war dream falling apart. But as we tell that story, we don't really talk about what replaced those jobs for working Americans. And so when I wrote the book Temp, I wanted to tell that other story, not just the story of the fall of industrial unions, um, but the rise of alternative forms of work. And I wanted that story to be from top to bottom. Uh, so, that it was not just the story of workers, but also of capital, and to tell those stories in an intertwined way. You wrote earlier, you wrote
1: two books about debt. So, how'd you get from uh, which was also the, the subject of your dissertation work? So, how'd you get from studying debt to thinking about temporary work?
0: Well, obviously, I want to think about happy things, things that yeah. <laughs> uh, people can Good. be inspired by. No, I. I I, I wrote about debt because when I was went to grad school, I wanted to be a labor historian. And I realized, though, that while there were lots of good histories of, of labor, there were very few histories of working people's finances. And hmm. debt is such a crucial part of understanding you know, working Americans' life and yeah. middle-class people's lives and rich people's uh, yeah. lives, that, that I wanted to understand that. So how did debt go from the margins of society to the center, right? So in the 19th century, uh, you don't hear about the Vanderbilts and Carnegies making their fortunes on small loans to working people. No, they just had those people ground to dust in right. their minds. They, but by the end of the 20th century, our biggest – capitalist institutions were actively doing that so that was the story of my first book and then the second book was a sort of cultural shifts around that and its relationship to retail Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things I realized when I was doing that work was that you know I didn't really talk I talked about the sort of debt as sort of an extension of the changing way people were compensated or not compensated right that that earnings were stagnant. That mm. earnings were not just flatlining, but actually more volatile uh, at the same time, and that debt was used to offset that volatility. Mm. And so I thought, well, I'll, I should really talk about the sort of origin of that volatility and that uncertainty and that insecurity and precarity. And that's where that's where temp came from. But also, it came out of an experience I had as, you know, a precarious member of the, you know. Academic workforce that hmm. I couldn't get a job after grad school, so I went to go work as a consultant. That's
1: right. I always forget this. I mean, not not for long. Even if I just think about you, it comes back up. What what you do as a consultant?
0: Well, I, I you know, after grad school I couldn't get an academic job because I, you know, I'm a historian and that's right. a terrible <laughs> terrible decision, right? Yeah. Uh, except for the part where it's the best thing ever if you do get a job. It's a wonderful way to spend one's time. But um so I had to I had to pay my college debt, my student debt and I needed a job and so, you know, I applied for a job as a management consultant. And that's actually one of the origin points of this book that um I showed up to work on the very first day, and I sat down in my fancy suit in a fancy corporate high-rise overlooking a beautiful river. And I realized that I actually had a very similar job to my very first job when I was 15, hmm. my first official job, not just cutting grass, but um, working as a temp in Baltimore wow. in the 90s back at Accustaff when uh, being able to type was actually still a skill. And yeah. that was my very first job, and I did database entry. And I realized, I, so I started thinking about the correspondences between my work as a consultant and as a temp.
1: That's cool, man. You see, earlier you said you, you thought of yourself as a labor historian uh, when you first went to grad school or you wanted to be one. Now you've, you've very much come to focus on labor and work. I mean, you, you, you're in a, you run a center for workplace studies. So is that still part of your identity? Is that, is that how you think of yourself?
0: I think of myself as a labor historian, um, but you know, and I think it's hard to do, to study workers without seeing businesses at the same time. Yeah. Right. If you want to understand, although of course many people do, and it results in what always seemed to me as a very disjointed kind of historiography that if yep. you read the history of us steel written by a labor historian of the seventies and read the history of us steel written by a business historian, it's like they're two different planets. Totally. Um, And so, one of the things I tried to do is bring together my interests in the history of business, my interests in the history of labor. Um, But of course, the history of of work is more general than the history of labor in terms of labor unions and such. So, as I wrote the book, there are lots of places where I talk a lot about unions, Um, but I also talk about people outside of unions. And I think that. And, you know as we are in a world now where only 6% of the private workforce is unionized yeah. it's a mistake to not talk about these other kind of workplace experiences and that's what i tried to do in the in the book
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense to me um, one thing i really like about temp is how you show that although many people have a kind of nostalgia for what they think of as like the traditional stable job of the mid 20th century that this was, you know, those jobs were largely only available to, well, white dudes, basically. So, you know, like, what is employment for realities for women and minorities and other folks who didn't fit that description in the mid-20th century? What did that look like?
0: Yeah, and I'm certainly not the first person to observe this, um, but it's also something that you really can't say enough. I mean, there's such a gap between what people casually think about the world and what we know as historians that... Um, if there's anything I talk a lot about with other historians is like how we need to just write about things we know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, totally. that, and tell those stories again and again. Um, so, yeah, so we, we come out of the new deal. It's brought us a world where there's just so much more job security for office workers and factory workers um, who are white men. And so we kind of in this all our nostalgia for this post-war job, we, often want to ignore that reality that those promises were made to white men and more or less the women who love them. So Mm -hmm. for white women who had access to that kind of security, but only on the condition that they were married. Um, And of course, African-Americans and migrants of different kinds were all left out of that. And so what we did in the Mm post-war was draw a big line between people who deserve security and those who didn't. And so a big part of the arc of the book is the story of how our contemporary uh, insecurity is rooted in drawing this line in the post-war. So Mm -hmm. in the lives of the people who are left out of that security, we see the rehearsal for a new kind of economy that really effloresces in the 1970s and 80s um, through the work of migrants, um, both documented and undocumented, through the work of women, through the work of African-Americans. And so that's part of the story of the book about how it's not just a question of uh, that security being promised to a few people, but also who's left out of it. Yeah. And in the end, of course, that the fact that people are left out eventually comes to get even those white men yeah. that the story of deindustrialization, the story of downsizing, um, these are all white male crises. Mm-hmm. This has long been the story for nearly every other group of people in America. Um, In a lot of ways, that's the story of the gig economy today when we talk about Uber and taxi drivers. We're very concerned because taxi drivers are men, Um, Hmm. whereas we don't really talk about women in the gig economy or women in the digital economy, which is women are doing much, much better in the digital economy for lots of reasons. So for me, this is this is the arc of the story about who counts, who's included and who's excluded. One of the, um, <clears throat>
1: it turns out, I didn't know that I wanted a history of the company Manpower, but when I read your book, I realized I did want that history. So tell me, tell us about uh, the company Manpower, what it was and why it, why it's so important to this story of temporary work.
0: Yeah, so Manpower is this very first big um, temporary work agency. And if you think of temps you think of, okay, the secretary is sick and we're gonna send somebody in uh to replace him or her, although of course her in nineteen forty seven when this is founded. And this is a story that you think, oh, this doesn't matter that much, right? Temp work doesn't matter that much. And if you look at certain ways of accounting for the number of people in this economy, it's not that large. Mm. But if you actually look at the number of people who flow through that work in a year, it's the some of the largest employers in America. Hmm. Um, And it, how does that, how does this occur? Why is it ignored and what kinds of work are people doing? And so in the book, what I do is I look at, how this fulfilled the promise of post-war security to those secretaries at first, that somebody gets sick and you need them replaced and they can have a sick day and not just get refined yeah. and replaced. Right. Um, but I also explore the limits of it. So why does the founder Elmer winter begin to offer temporary work as a solution to large corporations? So, you know, We all have things that are due at the end of the month, like billing or invoices or whatever. And there's other kinds of things that are due um, in different kinds of cycles. And so what Elmer Winter said to corporations was, let us do that weird stuff. Not just think of us as emergency replacements, but people who can handle volatile work demands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some companies did this. And then he said, well, what if we just did all the work that people didn't want to do in your company and just fire everybody that you don't want, you know, (laughs) at the lower rungs and let us replace it. And what was surprising to me as I was doing this research, Lee, was just how much of a brick wall he faced, that Mm. it actually didn't sell, even though he had all kinds of studies to show that they were cheaper and more yeah, efficient, yeah. dot dot dot. Because companies just didn't run that way. And this is something you get a lot in history, I think. The yeah. fallacy of reason. Um <laughs> you encounters this idea that if something is backed up by data, then yeah or, or it makes sense that it's gonna happen. That's not how things work in the real world. In the real yeah. world, people do what already works with the experience they have. Just like recently with COVID. You know, three years ago, if I told you that everyone was going remote, you'd be like, no, they're not. Yeah. And if I told you, like, you could actually run lots of corporate jobs remotely, they'd be like, no, you can't. But now we all have this experience and nothing's going to be the same. So, this is sort of the story of data processing in the 1960s, which is the first big uh, project that temps do that replace huge swaths of an office workforce. Hmm. And in the aftermath, companies, particularly after a big crisis in 1969 that forces them to reimagine what the corporation is, they say, well, what does it mean to have a a worker outside the firm? You know, maybe we do it and like, what's the right ratio? And so all this sort of nibbling in towards um, that core secure workforce begins in that moment. And companies begin to say, wow, if we just hire all these workers we can fire all these temps no problem it won't make headlines and it yeah. will protect our real workers and again this question of who's real and counts and who's not so it's it's really that that's the story of manpower and it's also the story of, of Kelly Girls now known as Kelly Services and the story of lots of other mm-hmm. kinds of se- temporary firms but I use him in the book as a way to talk about the evacuation of the middle of the corporation as opposed to the top where I talk about The history of the management consulting firm mckinsey and also the way i I talk about industrial jobs um with migrant workers at Mm -hmm. the bottom
1: um yeah boy i have a couple questions that i want to follow up with but maybe i i'll skip ahead in my script and ask you about causality for a second like why winter was ahead of his time i guess so something you and i have talked a lot about is you know this argument that innovation and economic growth have you know, slowed down or plateaued with brief exceptions since the 1970s or so. I mean, Gordon argued, Robert Gordon argues this, a bunch of people are arguing at this at this point. So do you think part of what was driving the move to temporary and worker reclassification was corporations searching for ways to reduce costs when, you know, lots of industries weren't growing much or were struggling to have profits. I mean, was it this larger economic forces that are kind of like pushing them in this direction?
0: Well, I think that one of the things they do, if you just look at the 50s and 60s, is that they are looking for ways to first make the secure workforce work, um, both in offices and factories. So there were examples of you know, you could re- by 1960, you could pick up the phone and replace your entire assembly line with complete with Foreman with a phone call, wow. right? Um, and so, and people did do that. Sometimes they would shut down a factory, replace it with temps, so that everybody could go on vacation at the, for the same two weeks. Which is something that is just unimaginable in the 1920s, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know uh, how
1: quaint that they would even think about doing that. Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's. <laughs> So I mean, what's interesting to me is like, it is this, the post-war is this period of breakneck technological acceleration for lots of reasons. Um, yeah. and, but at the same time, a complete lack of innovation in corporate organization, like, yeah. they just, they like minimize risk. This is the key yep. inside of Galbraith that the post-war corporation is all about, having no market relationships uh internalizing all processes yeah. long term investment horizons and you know and monopolies right so the, yeah. all these monopolies of the technological monopolies of the post war generate lots of amazing technologies because they didn't weren't concerned about short term profits yeah um and so the innovations to my mind are technological um but they're not organizational there's all kinds of innovations that come with uh, after 1970 so elmer winter would go to these guys and they were all executives and be like and he he served all the big corporations so he had access to all these boardrooms right and he would say look like you should just outsource uh your whole mail staff you should outsource your and they were like no we're making enough money we don't want to rely on anybody else yeah and we make it work for us and that is just a very different account of how capitalist growth happens, right? Mm-hmm. The minimization of risk. Um, yeah. So is that what you're asking me? Yeah, I is- think so. Yeah. I mean, so the, what you
1: just outlined is, I think, why they were so resistant in the 50s and 60s, right? You're, you're saying, I mean, we should to give these folks credit. I mean, these their habits were one from experience and training from the people who came before them. You know, it's only in the twenties and thirties that these firms are growing up so quickly. And so, you know, like internalizing everything in the way you're talking about was something, it was a strategy that had worked. Right. And so I guess then I'm wondering like what, what happened then like when the seventies come about, what, what changes the kind of firm's relationship to temp? work if that if that question makes sense
0: yeah no i mean i think this is the real question right um and to under for me at least to understand the 70s you have to understand the crisis of the 60s which is not a crisis of the 60s per se but a success and that is the conglomerate so there is an innovation in corporate organization in the 60s called the conglomerate which if you're just like a student of sci-fi you think oh tyrell conglomerate or some megacorp dystopian cyberpunk future yeah but conglomerate actually has a very specific meaning it means a firm that diversifies across unrelated industries so the same company that makes uh basketballs also makes jet planes and Mm -hmm. there's no obvious connection between those products right and but this was seen as the sort of future of corporate organization in the 1960s and all the biggest firms did this, except for a very few. So, you know, firms you haven't heard of before, like Ling Temco Vout, LTV, um, you know, were at the forefront of this, but they convinced General Electric to do this, too. Right. Yeah. So this yeah. is when General Electric began to, like, make computers and jet engines and not just toasters. Um and so what happened around 1969 is that all this falls apart, that it turns out that you should have knowledge of one thing in relation <laughs> yeah. to another thing. Specialization
1: matters. Is that what you're Specialization
0: saying, Specialization matters, that you sort of <laughs> this general faith in managerial science is yeah. not uh, true. And in, in all of this is built around financialization and um, hmm. sort of the use of finance in a way that hadn't existed since the 1920s. Um, That is the leverage buyout. And it's done through a bullish stock market that feeds on itself, that allows people to borrow and buy. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that naively people who haven't studied this stuff um, associate with the 1980s, right, and the movie Wall Street, um, were actually happening in the 1960s. And so we have an after this collapse for the next 15, 20 years is this sort of unwinding of all these conglomerates. Mm. And that is the story of wall street mergers and acquisitions and dot, dot, dot. Um, But it produces an intellectual crisis for the corporation. And I was surprised when I came to this position, because I don't think of myself as an intellectual historian. I Mm -hmm. often think of myself as an anti-intellectual historian. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And, but it really was in a lot of ways about ideas so that right. the, there was this sort of lack of material foundation for the way these new corporations were being run. And in the aftermath, there were all there was like a, a cottage industry of people trying to explain the future. Um, mm. And so what's inter- what was interesting to me was that if you're historians like us, you're like, oh, it was it was uh, economists. It was economists and the Chicago school. It was neo conservative economists and what we now call neoliberal um, economists, uh-huh. But if you look at businesses and like what businesses were actually doing and who they were reading, it wasn't those people. It wasn't the Chicago- it was Milton mm. Friedman sometimes because he was on TV. but sure. He was on TV. Yeah. The people they actually paid millions to and got the advice of were consultants. Yeah. Were the Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey, Um, who were paid millions of dollars to tell them how to run their firms. And then they did. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I do in the book is trace this history of ideas, um, uh, as well as situate those ideas within the institutions of consulting itself. Um, And for me, that was really the story. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was a story of how this outsourcing of work at the top led to an outsourcing of work in the middle. And then eventually to an outsourcing of work at the bottom um, as sort of the interconnection of different ways of working from top to bottom allowed for a new kind of organization of the corporation that looks very different by 1980 than it does mm-hmm. um, in 1960.
1: Am I right that that consultants kind of play a dual role in, in the book in that they are temporary workers in an important Part, but they're also an important vector for this idea that maybe temporary work is the road forward for these firms.
0: That's the argument that I make that um, if you pay someone a million dollars to tell you what to do, you probably listen to them. Yeah. Where nobody's reading Econometrica to get their ideas <laughs> on how to uh, uh, think about yeah. the firm. Um, right. Yeah.
1: So, and, I mean, yeah. But- Business schools, too, is another vector for you. Yeah.
0: yeah, business schools. Um, and you do see the proliferation of finance at business schools during yeah. this moment, um, which historically had been very mm, sidelined at business schools. Huh. It was seen as like a Jewish pursuit. And you have all these, uh, you know, men who want white men who want to go into um, manufacturing. And so uh, there's a real turn in this moment. Huh. Um, there's an interesting story uh, in the book Capital Rules, which is kind of uh, old at this point about sort of the near collapse of Standard & Poor's in the 60s, because there was just nothing going on in certain ways. Hmm. Anyway, let's put that to the side. What? Um, but yeah, I think that m- management consultants are an important vector, um, and technology consultants, uh, which also yeah. I write a lot about in the book, which no one has ever asked me about in any interview, but I think it's like the one of the messaging parts of the book.
1: I, um, I think it's interesting because I'm interested in those people. But why don't you tell us what technology consultants
0: are? Yeah, let's... We can go back to in a second. But yeah, so the story of like these these management consultants is really spreading these ideas around, um, yeah. both as paid consultants and also just writing journals like McKinsey Quarterly um, mm-hmm. and writing books. Um, and so on the one hand, you have these consultants and then you also have these this new generation of business gurus um, who become very popular um, who like Toffler and, and, and Future Shock sort of explain the future. And in a lot of ways are quite right. Um, and it's not clear, are they right because we made that world happen? Or yeah. are they right because that was the course it was going? Um, the tech consultants are interesting because they emerge out of accountants. Huh. And they are just very different than the, consult, the, the strategy consultants. The strategy consultants all go to Harvard and are generally WASPy. They have cool glasses. Technology, yeah, yeah, and and if you look at the people who are in the counties, they're Catholic, they're Jewish, they are ethnic whites of various stripes. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't go to Ivy League schools, but they all have CPAs. Um, and so, what you, the story you have in the in the book is the story of. Why is there so much public accounting going on? And it's because of the SEC, but it's also the complication of the new multi-divisional corporation. You mentioned earlier that this new kind of bureaucratic corporation didn't exist. It didn't exist since before yeah. the 1920s. There were a few examples here and there, but it wasn't right. the sort of main way things worked. And it's hard, right? Uh, as yep. you know, corporations are complicated. So mm. this this army of accountants emerges um, with these very specialized skills. And as they're looking at books of these firms, they say, hey, you can save money doing this. Yeah. <laughs> you can save money doing that. We know your business. Here's how to save money. And so is born um, uh, advisory services mm. in accounting. And then they they say, hey, you can save money by buying this computer. It's yeah. 1965. Buy a computer. Buy this system, uh, System 360, and install it. Um, hmm. And thus, technology consulting is born. And it comes out of accounting. Um, and so there's this back and forth over the next 30 years between who is the real part of Arthur Anderson? Is it the tax audit people? Is it mm. the consulting? people? Is it the tech consulting people? And in the book, I trace that story because it's also the story of how corporations begin to rethink their relationship with technology and um, with workers as well. Um, And to think about the rise of these people who are deciding on telling corporations how to run their affairs. Mm -hmm.
1: And so, I mean, part of what we're talking about now is that in the '80s and onwards, we do have a lot of organizational innovation that we have, like changing structures, right? Um, one of the things that you know gets a lot of attention around Uber and Lyft and these companies, we'll talk more about a bit about later, is that workers become classified as, um, you know, contractors or, or things like this, right? I mean, that's an important part of this kind of temporary work shift, so. What you know, that in itself is a kind of organizational innovation. How did they figure out how to do that? And you know, what did it take to make that happen?
0: Yeah, this real question of misclassification, right? Right. Um, and the only reason it matters is because since the 1930s, we've developed this corpus of labor laws and employment laws that give em- uh, formal employees all kinds of protections um, and rights in the workplace and mm-hmm. uh, benefits, you know, like workers' comp. And if you are outside of that, you don't get those things. Um, you're considered an independent contractor, and but you get the ability to deduct your expenses. You're, and there's all kinds of interesting ways in which there are different definitions of this. In the mm. book, I go through um, different ways it's defined by the IRS, by legal regimes, um, by different you know legal um, bodies of law and, yeah. and lawmakers. And it's interesting that they're not always exactly the same. Um, mm-hmm. And and what's at stake? And what's at stake is those things, benefits. Um, but fundamentally, I think it's about a lot of the same issues that our, uh, Elmer Winder talked about, which is power and control. Yeah. to Telling somebody what to do and when to do it. And this is one of the things that differentiates a contractor from a worker. It's like, do you control your own time? Do you control... Mm your own tools do you do your work process in the way huh. you think is best and so it's this kind of definition is meant for a carpenter who comes to your house and fixes your house and like you're like hey build me a porch and he has his own tools and yeah, he knows how to build his own porch and dot 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 it's not clear what that means when you're talking about somebody who writes a manual a technical manual at Microsoft mm-hmm. and sits in the same desk for three years five years, seven years and makes and sitting right next to somebody who's a Microsoft employee. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the, one of the things that's interesting is a series of cases called the Microsoft cases where Microsoft um, is sued by workers there in the eighties and nineties for being not, they were claiming we're employees. We're not contractors. Um, And eventually Microsoft loses. Hmm. Um, But, it's, I forget the exact number. If you have the book near you, you can look it up. But it's like 04 percent or something of their annual yeah profit revenue. Right? It's like something. In they spend more on like you know party dip uh, yeah than they do on this. And so it's kind of just like the cost of doing business. <laughs> yeah. Um And I think for me that was really telling that that like you can the laws are there Mm -hmm. (laughs) people can use them and has absolutely no effect on the way people are actually working yeah and this is for me the story of the 80s and 90s that there is the story of laws that protect a certain kind of person a certain kind of worker yeah and then there's everybody else and that everybody else part just keeps growing Mm -hmm. and so you know we can reform those laws or point to those laws as much as we want but we still end up in a place where that is just not the laws that that's not the the power that matters to yeah. regular working people.
1: And so Microsoft loses, but, you know, uh, how do companies succeed? Because, you know, Apple and definitely Apple, I've heard from friends who work there is full of temps, you know, and most ah. of these big companies are. So what changes that allows these companies that, I kind gotta of keep going down the Microsoft road, even though Microsoft loses in quotation marks.
0: Yeah, Microsoft loses. It's not just Microsoft; it's Apple. Even in the eighties and nineties, it's Apple. Mm-hmm. It's Hewlett Packard. I do. I got access to the Hewlett Packard archives, and you can tell the story very easily through the story of Hewlett Packard, which is thought of as a place of secure work. But you know, through this exact same period. Hmm. They're importing the same kind of uh, mistranslated Japanese ideas of efficiency yes. through <laughs> McKinsey. Uh, yeah. You know, like they're reading, they're, they're thinking about sort of racist ideas of Oriental mystique and this question of Japan uh, yeah. um, and reorganizing. Um, basically they, they learn what is a trigger for the IRS or uh-huh. for courts and they enforce it. So, they make sure that if you are doing this kind of work, you don't go to the Christmas party. Right. You don't go to the softball team. You wear a different color badge. You, um, mm-hmm. So all these sort of ancillary things of the workforce, the connections with your fellow uh, employee, that the right. occasional beer, none of this is available and they're very particular about it. Um, yep. But yet they still try to make sure that this kind of work exists because it's cheaper they have more flexibility. Um, they have more power. Mm-hmm. And it's true at Google, and I don't know what today, but certainly a few years ago, that if you were a contractor, you could ride the Google bus. You just had to pay for it. Um, and you couldn't get access to all the yeah. free stuff. tech. And so this, this is not a new thing, though. This is not Google. This is not Uber. This yeah. goes back to the very origins of Silicon Valley. As a way of thinking about work um, this evasion of this this labor law and very successfully so right mm-hmm. it was you know this is this is how they became the big tech giants that we uh know and love and fear today mm-hmm.
1: uh let's bring this up to the president a bit where were gig or so-called sharing economy companies at when you wrote this book i know you spent some time out in silicon valley right you were at stanford for a year or a semester or something
0: yeah, so I re- I was at Stanford in uh, 2016, um, and so during that year I spent a lot of time in the Apple archives at hmm. um, at Stanford. With the basically, when Steve Jobs came back uh, in the late 90s, um, the very first thing he did was one of the things, the first things he did. He walked into their archive at the headquarters, asked them what they had there, and they said, "Oh, we we have all the archives." And he said, "The past doesn't matter." <laughs> and shut it down. <laughs> That's so jobs. It is so jobs. Anyway, they donated everything to the Stanford Library. Wow. Um, so you can go there. and one of the things I'm most proud of in the book is the sort of labor history of the first Macintosh plant. Um, mm-hmm. looking at how, you know, which was set up across the street in Fremont from Numi, the Numi plant, which is a very famous Toyota, gm collaboration that people focus on when they're writing labor histories of the auto you know a little bit about Have you ever heard about cars <laughs> heard of them before yeah they- so you know this is like the thing you talk about and like right next yeah. door is the first mac plant and no one talks about it That's <laughs> so i always man. thought that yeah. was so crazy yeah um so yeah so when i was there you know i i would regularly see self driving cars at-, at google you know everyone was taking ubers and lifts everywhere yeah um, and it seemed like the future of autonomous cars. So when I wrote the book, I was, you know, people were still trying to figure out what we thought about this. Um, yeah. and certainly there was a large number of people who thought, Oh, if we ban it, it'll stop. And yeah. and certainly a large number of people who thought this is what's going wrong with America. And I know that always struck me as odd because if you could ban Uber and Lyft tomorrow and it wouldn't make America, um, uh, an equal place for working people, <laughs> <you're>, right? <Yes. laughs> you'd, you'd have to believe that like everything was hunky dory before the smartphone. And yeah. uh, you're a tech guy, Lee. When when was his first smartphone? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible
1: uh I've looked this up recently how which definition are you using so let's say it's two let's
0: say it's 2006 it's like okay. 2000 so let's go around there right yeah you would have to believe that in 2006 yeah. there was no inequality in America I know. and things were great so there's a weird way in which these companies act as a lightning rod for erasing yeah. Walmart for erasing yep. all everything else uh, in a lot of ways what's interesting to me is the organization and of these new kinds of firms has been, they've been more responsive than Walmart was. Uh, Hmm. So if you look at Amazon, which is a terrible place to work if you're in the warehouses, right? Yeah. They're like, yeah, 15 an hour. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) Like, let's, they were actually afraid of unionization, whereas Walmart was never afraid of unionization. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this It's an interesting question thinking about the the gig economy and what it means about the future of work um, Mm -hmm. in 2016. And certainly the story's changed a bit. I mean, we're living kind of now in a a future of work where we're all remote.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you, I mean, like, is, you know, where do you feel, what do you think has changed around the, the gig economy from, you know, when you were writing this book and finishing this book up from the present? Like, what are the big shifts that you see?
0: Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, AB5, right? And that sort of regulation in California that states tried to actually regulate the gig economy.
1: Mm-hmm. And, um,
0: I mean, one of the things that was so interesting to me when I was writing the book, I have a section called What Labor Can Learn from Uber, um, which has not gone over well with labor. I've talked <laughs> about it with them, where I, where I say things like, well, laws don't matter. Power matters. Uh, yeah. The organization of workers matters, not lawyers. Lawyers are what destroyed the labor movement in America. This is this does not go over well uh, when mm-hmm. I say things like that. But you know, I do think that it's there's a reliance on the strength of the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, a reliance on the on the strength of this corpus of laws that was an effect of the strength of the labor movement in the thirties and forties and fifties, but it didn't cause that. There's a way in which we tell the story of a bunch of laws were signed into place in the thirties. And then we had fair work. It's like, that's not what happened. You goody two shoes. (laughs) Well, they're all lawyers. Lawyers
1: love to think that law is super important and is causal or something like that. And actually it's more like a lagging indicator of power and social yeah. movements and, and things like that, right?
0: I mean, justice is what's in the interest of the stronger, right? That's all that's some old school knowledge right there. <laughs> no, and and so, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's auto workers shutting down factories and then throwing door handles at cops. That right. <laughs> gives labor power. Right. It's shutting down supply chains in the middle of the Great Depression, right? Mm-hmm. Um that's the story, and so part of what Uber did was the same. They're like laws don't matter. Like make it make it stick. Yeah, and that's the long lesson of Silicon Valley that they haven't been regulated ever. That's why Silicon Valley has the more Superfund sites than anywhere else in the country. It's relying upon hundreds of thousands of undocumented workers um, for its success. Mm. This, is this, this is this one of the stories I tell in the book yeah. is that we think of tech work in the eighties as, you know, nerds with HP calculators, but it's actually hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese and Chicano workers, uh, legal and illegal who are being pressed into the service of capital in a way that looks very much like, you know, sweatshops of the 1880s or Mm. something like this. Um, and so I think what's changed in the gig economy is this attempt to rein it in Mm -hmm. and, has it been successful i think we still don't know i mean yeah. we know that uber had carve outs um so that's changed i think there's been a broad deflation of the tech you know the tech optimism of just yeah, 5 years yeah. ago right um right and i and i also think that there is now a broad incredulity towards autonomous cars yeah so i think a lot of these firms Thought of workers as sources of data that were being used to train their algorithms and yeah. train their car driving, and they were transitional workforces that could be churned through and then traded up for AI. And now it's 2021, and I still have to drive my car. So I think that <laughs> well, that's when Uber it. and
1: Lyft sold their self-driving car units, I mean that fantasy is gone. Um, That whole vision and, you know, these companies, they're not profitable. They, you know, they're in like the bonfire business of just burning people's money, basically. And it's not really clear like what the, you know, what a good profitable road forward is for some of these companies. You know, it's a it's a big question mark. It's Um, a big
0: question mark uh, for so much of this, you know. uh, And, you know, I think that's and it's a big question mark for American workers. Right. So one part of the book that I wrote about um, was thinking of inverting this question of like, why are we so concerned with Uber that we think Uber is the cause? And if you talk to, you know, latte drinking liberals, they're like, Oh, I don't do that. I don't shop here. I don't buy that. I yeah. don't do these things. It's like, well, good for you, but people and people still need to make their rent, make their ends meet. Yeah. And the story of a lot of, I think a lot of the, gig workers are people who, for whom regular employment has failed them. They can't yeah. get enough shifts at, you know, Walmart or Starbucks. And then they turn to this as mm. a way to sort of make up that gap. And And there's data that supports this. There's been studies mm-hmm. done that show when people have access to this kind of work, they borrow less uh, to make up the gap. Huh. And so I think that's yeah. the story we need to think about when you think about like, well, why is regular employment failed people before we say go back to those jobs that are already terrible? And we we know right now in the midst of COVID, people are not going back. They're like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) That that is not a long term.
1: Yeah, there's I've been finding this over and over as I kind of look at waves of technology hype from the last 30 to 40 years is there's always, you know, other people have written about this. We always talk about Amy Sue Bix and her great book on you know, technology, the history of technological unemployment. And, um, you know, I think there's this constant wave of worries that like these technologies are going to put people out of work and and this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, I mean, nanotechnology did not undermine our economy to the point that it massively put people out of work. It turns out that we can have a crappy economy full of shit jobs without that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a bit more about kind of, um, the way some folks think about this and the way, you know, kind of hopeful visions you have for the future in a second. But I wanted to talk to you uh, first to, about the study I, you did in Seattle, if I'm right. And like, you looked at Uber datas and, you know, what you found in, in that work that you did.
0: Yeah, it was kind of like a, a turn for me um, in a lot of ways. Um, I have an undergrad degree in math as well. And uh, I did econometric stuff in my dissertation. So I'm huh. comfortable with numbers. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a whole chapter that's all like data in my, yeah. uh, in, in, in my first book, but um, but it just seemed important. And in, in the, the folks at Uber and, and Lyft approached uh, me and a group of people at Cornell to do have access to their administrative data for, their time data, their earnings data. And so we put together a study and, you know, there's problems there's with it because we did it in the middle of COVID and lots of us had small children. Um, And so it's limited in some ways, but I think for me, the big takeaway was the incredible variation in earnings Hmm. and time um, that we look at this data And we see every story about the gig economy confirmed. We see people who are just crushing it, making $40, $50 an hour. We see people who are being uh, miserated, making $4 an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is just like, I think it's part of the ways in which our brains are wired for the average and not the variation. And so we want to say, well, what is the average wage? And I can tell you what the average wage is. And actually it turns out it's about average for Seattle, um, which makes sense. It has to be a pretty mm. affluent person who can get a car and mm-hmm. drive around and they probably have some alternatives available to them. Yeah. Um, so they're not making $5 an hour, which some people like to have done very Elaborate cost calculations to come to, but I don't think you need to bring people down to $5 an hour, which to to say, it's not a great job. Um, Mm -hmm. $18 an hour is is not a great job either in terms of like getting by. Um, It's only comparatively good um, compared to the minimum wage or something along those lines. Yeah. But what struck me was the variation in earnings. I thought the variation in earnings was just astonishing because it's so different than people working a cash register. Um, or a checkout who basically yeah. earn within 50 cents or a dollar of each other. Um, yeah, and, that's interesting. And, it's, and it is this, so there's that question of like risk and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, I'm in the process now of trying to arrange a new study that is more longitudinal, that is more platforms, has a whole state rather than just a city. And I'm excited to um, try and bring in, Lots of different questions around that to get a sense of what is actually going on with people. What accounts for this variation? Uh, mm-hmm. is, it, is it is it demography? Is it experience? Hmm. Is it uh, location? You know, huh. what is what is the story here? Um, and is this is it, it? Could be that this job is a terrible job if you're trying to do it full time, but it works if you're just kind of getting a few hours in and get save a little extra huh. money. Um, and so I think our imagination of work has not kept up with, uh, the reality of work. So a few years ago, I did a survey of New York state, um, workers. And part of that, uh, I immediately got the data set and then I pulled it out and I was like, Oh, this is amazing. One of the sort of basic questions you ask on any survey is, are you a full-time worker? Are you a part-time yeah, worker? Yeah. Are you a temp or are you unemployed? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, And so I was like, "All right, well, let's see people who drove for Uber how they think of themselves." And so Lee, what do you think? How do you think people answered that? Oh my God!
1: Uh, Are they full time? Are they
0: part time? Are they self employed? Are they temporary? Are they unemployed? If they're driving for Uber,
1: they're driving. Do they call themselves full time if they're driving full time?
0: They call themselves full time. They call themselves part time. They call (laughs) themselves temporary. They call themselves self employed. They call Um, themselves unemployed. That's really interesting. Because it all has to
1: do with where it fits in their lives, which there's a huge variation there.
0: It's a huge variation. It's one of the reasons why survey data just isn't very good um, at dealing with this new kind of work because it's just so we don't even understand what we mean when we say these words or how we think about ourselves. And the categories are certainly not stable from person to person. Mm. So this is why it's exciting to use the administrative data um, as well as, you know. Because mm-hmm. then you get this sort of more objective take, which doesn't mean that people's subjective opinions don't matter. Mm-hmm. It just means that, you know, as social scientists, um, we want to have a sense of that. Um, is this why you, you have some skepticism? I think, you know, I've
1: seen like, is it the Bureau of Labor Statistics or one of these groups has, you know, put out findings that temp work isn't going up very much according to some of these social surveys? But you're skeptical of that finding, right? I mean, is that fair?
0: Well, it's fair in the sense that, you know, I, I believe I believe them. I don't think they... Uh, yeah, no, uh, no. But it has they're to do with their methods, good. right? Yeah, they're very good methods. Um, yeah. Um, but I think it's just one of the things where it's like, well, why are you interested in their not interested in their supplementary work. Why yeah. are you not interested okay. in things you do just a little bit at a time? And you see this a lot in people when you talk to people who want to regulate or worker worker activists. They are very concerned about full-time workers. Yep. Um, as if people do this for fun side. Funsies. Money, like pin money or something. This is like yeah. you're about temp workers in the 50s. They're like, oh, women are doing this so they can get a new color TV. It's like, no, that's actually <laughs> not the case even in the 1950s. They yeah. were luxury first. Like, no, they they want to pay their rent and their mortgage and their husband is on strike. Right. Uh, um, So this is, you know, I think one of the things we're I think is happening is that there are now a portfolio of different kinds of jobs. The way we think about a portfolio of assets, if we're, you know, um, a marginalist economist, this is uh, how people think about it. So I think how do we combine, and, and you know, for me, this is, this is one of the opportunities that could have a technical fix. Like, do I have an AI negotiating across multiple APIs to find the best job for me in the next hour? Um, Mm. You know, like as the ultimate, um, you know, temp firm for me and my work. uh, Yeah. Who's going to willing to pay me? So I think there's there's ways in which um, capital is ahead of labor. But historically, as as you know, that whenever there's new technology, capital uses it against workers. And then- labor manages to turn the tables again, right? This is the story of the great railroad strike of 1877. On the one hand, you have uh, capital using new technology to uh, create a national railroad network and coordinating with it this new thing called a telegraph. But then workers are like, then coordinate themselves with the telegraph and then cut the lines. Um, so <laughs> it's possible yeah. to think about counter technologies that are emergent out of this as well. And this is one of the things, if I'm hopeful is thinking through what that means.
1: So, I mean, that's where I wanted to go next, actually, is I think part of the criticism I hear you make in the book and in the the New York Times op-ed that was related to the book, and you know, I've heard you make other places too, is that so many other people who are concerned about the gig economy world and Uber and Grubhub and all these things are very intellectually fixated on this old mid 20th century vision of full-time employment okay and the the, what they want to do is bring those jobs in line with that that's like that's how they think about this problem right
0: that's a good job to them
1: that's a good job to them and part of what i hear you saying is like i mean here's why i would put it is like we can imagine other ways of organizing work in society because that job wasn't not only was it only belong to white dudes for the most part it wasn't even around for that long historically right i mean you know you just look you it comes into you know in the us it comes into being like in the late 19th century or something like that i'm probably fudging my dates but something like that you know it's around for a hundred years maybe so i mean for you it seems it seems like if i hear you correctly what you're saying is there's other ways to do this right there are other kind of futures that we can imagine when it comes to Temporary work in these things. So play that out of it. I mean, what, how, if you think of like positive futures around these things, what, what are some, some things you think about?
0: Yeah. Whenever I hear people who are nostalgic for the good job, um all I hear in my head is an, is an old um, rock lyric. The only good boss is one that's dead. You know, <laughs> who's this? Do you know? Oh, oh just Google it. You know okay. who it is. And uh, <laughs> so I, I think in my head, I'm like, well, one of the reasons when I teach my labor history class, I make sure to start before wage labor, because I uh-huh. think one of the important possibilities of history is to imagine other kinds of regimes and students freak out when I'm like, mm, wages didn't always exist as the yeah. main way we worked and exchange value with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very odd to me always when people who are ostensibly left and um, are very nostalgic for like good wages. I'm like, that is not the same marks I read. Um, And so I think that this is something useful to think about, about how, what kinds of possibilities does technology allow that was not possible before. So on the one hand, we have platforms like Amazon that are consolidating um, retail, consolidating power in logistics, mm-hmm. consolidating power in supply. Um, but platforms are actually quite different than the corporation. The corporations existed um, for quite some time. is the only way that individuals can, this is the story of Galbraith, right? can assemble access to markets mm-hmm. and uh, workers and capital and technology mm-hmm. and um, resources And the idea that you could do this as an individual or a small group of people through platforms to sell to the world, to buy from the world, to uh, work around the world. To me, this seems kind of utopian and amazing in in a certain – not necessarily, right? Yeah. but and certainly when you talk to a lot of these sort of uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency anarchist types, you're like, that's delusional. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah to to definitely clients. delusional. Yeah. Def- <laughs> you know, and that like Kickstarter is not the same as Bank of America. Yeah. And Bank of America is not yeah. going anywhere. But I do think that there are interesting possibilities, Yeah, especially when you think about sort of like platform cooperatives. Um, mm-hmm. Like what does Uber look like if it's run by a bunch of platform cooperatives, a uh, cooperative mm. way? And that kind of coordination um, is possible through the digital economy in a way that uh, has never happened before. Um, so yeah. corporations are not new. Monopolies are not new. But the ability of individuals to connect is new, right? Mm. Um, and right now it's mostly being used to exchange you know, laser cat videos or something like Hell that. Yeah. But it could be used to buy, sidestep a lot of that, those kinds of things. And, that, and again, it, not necessarily. Right. And it's not to say that... There isn't a place for corporations. But I also think that there's a lot of interesting things happening um, through the platform economy. And often when I say these things, people say, that is not what's happening at Uber. And I say, Uber is not the only thing that matters. Right. That there's also Etsy. And then if that person is a man, uh, they say, what is Etsy? (laughs) And if that person is a woman, they say, I love Etsy. Yeah. What do you mean? And I say, well, hundreds of thousands of mostly women, a lot of rural women are making what they consider full-time jobs on Etsy by selling. And when we look at that, we hearken back to thinking about what does it mean to control one's time? What does it mean to control Mm. what you make? Um, Mm -hmm. How you can engage with your total being in terms of creative pursuits. And then as as you ask those questions, and you're less concerned about like, you know, workplace injury um, mm. and workers' comp, which is not to say that doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just saying it's not the only thing that matters because there's an injury simply by having to go to an office. There's an injury simply by having to go to a factory, having yeah. to do the same thing over and over again. And so, even for those white guys in the post war, like whether you're filling out forms mm. or sitting on an assembly line hitting the same button over and over again, this is crushing your soul. Yeah, yeah. And so how do we create an economy that liberates the soul and, you know, also is sustainable? And, and and this is a moment when I'm in conversations with people and they say, oh, that's socialism. I'm like, cool. Yeah, well, whatever.
1: I, Who cares really, what we call it? I mean, but part of what you do talk about in the book um, is that if, if you know, we're, we're playing out like using these Tools for more utopian ends, you know, saying like Uber is yeah. not the road forward. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about going down positive roads of this stuff. In the book, you talk about you know things that would help. That would include universal health care. Um, you know, maybe basic income. I can't remember if you you suggest that or not. But you know, there's there's social policies that you could pass that would reduce risk for individuals. Right. And shelter them. So they're not, you know, so that the, you know, getting a job in a corporation is not the only option for having stability in your life. You know, you could have a more stable, shelter, you know, safe society in general. And then and then maybe these other options become more desirable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I so I, in the book, I lay out conservative options. Mm-hmm. I lay out right, radical options. I just think we that, that staying yeah. where we are is not working. Um, mm-hmm. And. Of course, since I wrote that book, the political culture of America has gotten even more divided. So I'm sure there's people who say, why did you even think about conservative options? But uh, to me, like universal healthcare is a very conservative position. Basic income is a very conservative position. These are saying, you know, this is what every other industrial country does. And it says, we don't want to put the onus of this on companies um, and just let them do whatever companies do. But I think that, yeah, those. My personal favorite of those policy positions is when a stock is issued, um, issue one share of it into a holding company for the whole population and get your citizens' share, hmm. which is this kind of like anarchist position, anarchist, anarcho-socialist position um, hmm. that has no state media, no state control over the funds, but just like allows people to actually actually own capitalism. Um, but I think. Uh, I think that this is this is one of the questions we can ask ourselves and always a question we keep to keep re-asking ourselves. Like how do we, technology doesn't do anything. Technology, I'm sure you've talked about your other, but technology, technology is just one possible tool that humans yeah. can use. Yeah. And it's often used to solve for social crisis. And we're in the midst of social crisis. Um, and so if it's not algorithms and, and AI, Mm. And Uber are doing this to us. It's the fact that we've created a society where the majority of the population does not count, yeah. um, and that some people are taking advantage of that. And that's when we let them do it, and we encourage them to do so. And so that's for me that is the real uh, crisis. Yeah. Um, also, part of that story is, is is uncertainty. What you were talking about, right? Yeah. And so we talk a lot about income inequality, and I think mm. everyone and their brother since Occupy now knows about income inequality, but that was not the case before 2010. Mm. I'm happy to talk about that, but we don't talk enough about income volatility. Mm -hmm. And it's something that people in the top 20% who get salaries, who get steady paychecks, don't understand about the rest of the country. there. Um, There was a study done that showed for the median household, like the dead center average household, um, about a little over half of them had month-to-month fluctuations in their income of 30%.
1: Jesus.
0: And just try to imagine saving on that or, or where, yeah. just even deciding where to live, right? So do you do you live at the place you are at the peak of that, in the middle, at the bottom? Do you know exactly where that is? Yeah. And that kind of volatility just is exhausting, right? Totally. Trying to plan yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of thing that that this kind of on-demand work offsets. But it doesn't mean that this is the only way to do that, right? There's Mm -hmm. other kinds of technical solutions, low-cost loan systems, auto savings programs. There's all kinds of things that people can do. And so if, in some sense, if inequality is a political problem, volatility is a technical problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a lot of ways, we should solve that before we try to tackle inequality, I think. Uh, because hmm. it's less contentious and it affects more people um, and is actually what makes people crazy. If Am I going to have enough money this month to buy my groceries? Yeah. Is something that hits people, even if they're not poor, if they're yeah. in the midst of volatility.
1: That's interesting. I'll have to think more about that. I mean, I certainly believe that uncertainty is, and the stress of these this kind of volatility is just awful for people in general. Hey, before I before I let you go, I wanna um I I thought you did this neat project on the history of e-commerce, um and I I just want you to kind of just say a couple words. I think the the primary output of it was a podcast. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we're we're gonna probably do a book in the next year or so. Okay. Um, Yeah, on the history of e-commerce. Yeah, I was sort of like trying to think about what does e-commerce look like if you decenter Amazon. Yeah. And founders. Although we talked to a lot of founders and people like that, but I'm I'm very excited about it. It's a largely the story that we're working on it the story of logistics and technology yep. and thinking about thinking about why it really got born in the 90s hmm. um, in the midst of a post Cold War moment hmm. and you think about and technology is a big part of the story yeah but the technology is important because of the political context that hmm. just for instance think about encryption. So encryption is legalized because there's no more communism <laughs> uh, and it's legalized yeah. in the early nineties. Right. And this is how Clinton can <laughs> get this through. Right. So the, the Clinton was very friendly to Silicon Valley yep. and this sort of origin of the new Democrats. Right. Um, so I think we're going to tell a lot of that story and maybe your listeners will be interested the story of like a, the Apache foundation, but also the story of, you know, mainstream America and retail and sort of tell try to tell those stories together um, as a way to shed some light on the rise of a logistics-based capitalism.
1: Cool, man. I love that. I, I talk to my students about logistics um all the time because I think that uh and you know a lot of technologies, especially productivity-enhancing technologies, haven't changed that much since the 70s, but I think Logistics and entertainment, you know, like Netflix and crap like that are the two the two big exceptions that and logistics clearly just has such a huge um, role in how we consume today.
0: You know, it's just. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways when I teach my classes, I talk about the night. I don't use the term neoliberalism. Mm. I talk about finance and logistics, the moving of money and the moving of things. Nice. And that's the story after 1970. That we know how to make stuff, and this is also the story of Marx, right? You know, when we think about production and distribution, um, yeah. and the squeezing out of profit in the supply chain, this is this is the the, on, uh, the advancement of capitalism. So, you know, I, I'm glad you do that. I think it's an important story, and it's certainly been decentered in importance um, as we think about retail and logistics as part and parcel of the same thing, right?
1: Yeah, Lou, thanks so much for coming on and talking to me today, bud. It's been a lot of fun.
0: A real pleasure, Lee. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having me on.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.